Welcome to the Upland Nation podcast, your, um, well, weekly adventure into the uplands. All things bird dogs, birds, and uh, the camaraderie that usually accompanies that. Whether you love the beauty, the folks you're going with, the incredible dog work, we're talking about it today. Really fun show in store for you. The first thing we're going to do is uh, train ourselves in a couple ways, yeah, including a new shooting game. Well, it's new to us here in the States to a great degree. We'll also get your advice on training our dogs to be more steady on point, enforcing the woe command. And then Kevin McLaughlin joins us. Kevin, you may not recognize, but you will be envious once you hear his story. It's our first in the Epic Hunt series. Kevin went to Montana with his lovely spouse and uh, picked up seven upland bird species in a single trip. There's something in there for everybody, whether it's uh, just being jealous or practical information about how to pull off your own epic hunt. It's all coming up right here on the Upland Nation podcast, brought to you by Sage and Breaker Gun Care Products, Pointer Shotguns, Mid-Valley Clays and Shooting School, True Lock Choke Tubes, MidwayUSA.com. Purina Pro Plan Sport Dog Food and High Viz Shooting Systems. See what you've been missing. Yeah, here, um, the usual. Yeah, we're working on the usual stuff, including steadiness on birds as they fall to the ground. Flick continues to amaze me. Yeah, in spite of my best efforts, he's pretty darn steady. Now, we haven't graduated to a, a big shotgun yet, but we're using blank pistols, and he seems to be pretty solid without any help. Nobody's laying a hand on him in one way or another. No gut hitch, no leash on the collar, no nothing. So, fingers crossed there. The other thing I've been doing a lot of lately, since I got back from Mid-Valley Clays and shooting school, is practice my slower gun mount yeah someday yeah maybe i'll write something about that the idea that you you look with your eyes you see the target you don't raise your gun to your cheek until you're going to pull the trigger or vice versa you can do that however you like but the point is i'm just taking my time on that so that i'm not rushing the gun mount seems to be working shot 85 percent last weekend at the uh, sporting clays range yeah, I know. A one-off? Maybe. I'll keep you posted. You, on the other hand, are working hard on your dogs and getting them steady. How do you ensure that he holds that point once he's hit it? I asked on our Facebook pages, and here are some of your answers. Lance Larson, as always, practice, 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 and trust your dog. Fred Gacinto says his old lab has always held a point until the bird starts to run. Of course, that's where the, pardon the pun, the rubber meets the road. So um, he's sure, he, he, Fred says his dog is not sure if he's allowed to move after that. And, you know, there are varying schools of thought on that. So good luck. He's using this one. He'll give the OK command and that will keep his dog moving along with those running birds. Uh, George Gomez says, uh, whoa, since a puppy, refresher training with birds as needed. Um, cork green leash and place board training. Yeah, and you're right. 
cork. Each dog learns in a different way. Boy, I learned that when I was learning how to be a teacher. Ralph Klimak says start early with food, gate, and the truck. Those are the ways you can kind of test your dog, tempt him to fail, if you want to call it that. And then once on birds, very light e-collar stimulation and a command. Yeah, I, I sure like the idea that a lot of people are talking about, and that is um, use the vibration capability on a lot of e-collars instead of the, the, the stimulation. Uh, Bruce Wondrek likes the belly collar, so do I, or variations on it. That could be the Smith Cousins half hitch, or it could be... Bob Ferris's uh, gut hitch, all sorts of things like that. Practice, 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 seeing it all over. <laughs> Alan Todd Ake says, take him to Dakotas and let him run after them until he's blue. He'll, the point, he'll hold a point after that. Isn't that the truth? Great stuff. More and more learning going on at all the social media pages. So if you are looking for advice... Hey, and some of it's pretty good. Head over to the Facebook, uh, USA.com. Uh, let's see, what is it? Wing Shooting USA at Facebook or the Upland Nation Facebook pages. They're all right there. And we are brought to you in part by Purina Pro Plan Sport. Yeah, learn more about them at ProPlansport.com. And then try to say that three times fast. You know, I'm learning more and more as we are making, uh, you know, making the, um, the preparations for this season. I'm learning more about performance and uh, uh, omega-3 fatty acid is one of those things that uh, becomes more and more important in an athlete, whether it's human or canine. And Pro Plan Sport has the, the, the appropriate amount of omega-3 fatty acid. That and the glucosamine in there help support joint health and mobility during training. And then well, you know, as Flick gets up there, he's six years old now, throughout the rest of his life, joint health becomes more and more important. I just heard a horror story about a poodle pointer that is, um, you know, way ahead of its time when it comes to arthritis. And that's a, that's, I, I'm just so sorry to hear that. Anyway, uh, get yourself some Pro Plan Sport. Uh, they got a lot of formulations for you. One of them is perfect for your dog. Made for all life stages to support your hunting dog from puppyhood through their senior years. Learn more at ProPlansport.com. Just picked up a couple, um, what I think are going to be my brand new and uh, forever hunting shirts at MidwayUSA.com. Uh, let me suggest, on top of everything else they got in there, how they got down that rabbit hole, I don't know, but I am so grateful for it. Remember the good old Army Surplus store? Well, MidwayUSA.com has an entire department full of that kind of stuff. If you're looking for fun stuff or practical stuff that, um, you know, maybe the high-tech folks haven't glommed on to yet, go over to the... Uh, um, what, what are they called? Military surplus uh, pages over at MidwayUSA.com. Yeah, that's where I found some great hunting shirts. And the price is right, of course, on everything, but it, particularly that military surplus stuff. They carry just about everything you're going to need for shooting, hunting, in the outdoors, including a massive amount, growing amount, of dog training and bird hunting gear. It's all at MidwayUSA.com. 
We have taken a road trip, yeah. We're at the Mid-Valley Clays and Shooting School in Jervis, Oregon. You know them from uh, their sponsorship of the show. But we're here for a very special reason. I just shot my first round of uh, what most people call Helice. Some people might know it as ZZ Bird. But thanks to Dan Pesnecker and Dave Fiedler. Dave is one of the proprietors here. And Dan is an avid shooter. Dan Why'd you bring this game here? Uh, I brought it here because I was done hunting for the season, got bored, and saw it online. And it came to me that uh, I was lucky enough to have funding and thought I'd talk to Dave and Vandy about setting it up here at the club. And they agreed. And that's how it all got started. And boy, is it fun. It is, uh, it's a fascinating game. And Dave, why don't you describe the game to us? <laughs> um, what, it, what it is originally was set up to be replacement for a live bird pigeon shooter. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So what, if you imagine a little helicopter in five little machines in front of you, and this little helicopter's got a little white cap in it. Uh, it's attached to the orange wing, which is the little helicopter wing. So when you call pull, one of the five boxes would shove the little helicopter off of the spinner, which makes it turn in a circle like a helicopter, and it shoots it out. Now, as a little helicopter, you know the little toy ones they have kind of go anywhere. That's the same thing that happens with these. Sometimes they go straight up and say, here I am, shoot me. Sometimes they go right along the ground. Sometimes they go hard left, hard right. It's really close to what a real bird would do. So the key is you have to hit it, and you have to break the little white guy out of the helicopter, and it has to drop within the ring. So there's a big ring, and uh, not many of us have been to a live pigeon shoot, but there's a big, uh, a little fence around uh, the area that it has to drop into. Um, and Dan, they're, they're sitting in the little launchers, if you will, and we tell it to get ready by pressing the button, and then the, all five of those targets start spinning, don't they? That's correct. And then at random, one of them launches. Yes, and Anywhere then the fun begins. <laughs> yes, that's the fun part. And we saw everything from almost hitting the ground to straight up like a towering pheasant. And, and the other fascinating thing is they don't always just go in a nice, smooth trajectory, do they? No, they can start out level and climb at 80 degrees or 90 degrees. And, and uh, they can actually strike the ground. In, in the rules, a ground strike, as long as the bird continues on, it's a legal bird. So. Didn't have any of that, and I'd, I'd probably pull up anyway because I, the, the, those, the, I'll call them a trap house because I don't know what else to call them, but the launching places are really low, and if you were shooting, you might hit one of those too, although the, we'd rather not. Well, they, the manufacturer says they're made to be shot, and, and these have been shot, and, but, and the rules also read that if that target is hid behind the machine, it is still a legal target, so many guys will shoot no matter what. You know, in a, in a way, that's uh, that's kind of like rough grouse shooting. You know, you you don't want to you don't want to worry about hurting the trees. You just want to shoot the dang things. <laughs> Dave, you're a pro shooter. In fact, next week I think you're going to a tournament. Um, what is the biggest challenge of this game for somebody who really knows shotgunning? Uh, I think the inconsistency. Yeah, is probably the biggest challenge. 
uh, because when you're shooting trap, you know, everything is set to where it's supposed to go. It goes left and right. The height is all done. You shoot skeet around the world. It's all exactly the same. It's the same speed. Uh, it goes the same exact spot. You shoot sporting clays. You see the target before you shoot it because then you're going to repeat the same thing. This is a very inconsistent, which makes it really fun to bet on <laughs> if, if you would do that. Uh, and that's what makes it fun. Um, you know, we had a small tournament a couple of weeks ago, and the guy that ran 20 straight, 20 straight, because that's what we threw was 20, um, he had everyone that we would call a gimme bird oh, to me. Really? They went right up, in, you know, right up in the air and says, here I am, shoot me. Well, the guy who shot an 18 had like two of them that ran on the ground. That's okay. That one's gone. You're not going to, and he didn't hit him. So, you know, that uh, the inconsistency makes it really good. I guess that's the fun part. Just like bird hunting. If you walk up to a covey, you don't know where they're going to go. It's the same thing here. Well, Dan, you mentioned earlier you're, you're a bird hunter. You're out from that country that I love to go to. Um, what, do you, what do you see as a real advantage to a, a, a recreational bird hunter to play in a game like Helice? Well, to, to tune up for the bird season, yeah. I don't think there's anything that can match it. Mm -hmm, it's as mm -hmm. close as you'll ever get to shooting a live target. Yeah. Uh, as, as Dave said, it's quail are a good example of a bird that can fly low in the sagebrush or come straight up into the sky. So, and that's exactly what you're doing with the lease. You, um, we, we've, we've said the word several times, but I'm going to just spell it for everybody. H-E-L-I-C-E. Yes. Correct. Either of us know what it translates as? Well, it's a, I believe French is something for helicopter. It's sure. Somewhere in that line. So. Makes sense. <laughs> yeah. 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 And ZZ Bird is how some people might know about it. But I think that term is now kind of passe, isn't it? Yes. I wonder why. And I've heard so many different things of why it was even called ZZ Bird. Yeah, yeah. Some say because they were made of zinc, and oh, yeah. uh, there's lots of stories. Well, yeah. did you hear when they started? Yes. Z yep. That's when it speeds up. To me, that's a Z. Yeah, it is. It's a whole bunch of Zs. <laughs> Literally. <laughs> well, um, so let me start the process, and then uh, you guys will work me through it from there. Take my guns, go up to the stand. The stand is, uh, what did we say, 21 yards from the throwers? Does that sound about right, Dan? It's uh, 20, 27 yards. Tw well, that explains everything. <laughs> I feel less bad about all my missing now. <laughs> okay, so it's 26, just like a, what, trap field? Yes. Yeah. Um, walk up. Uh, in this case, it's an electronic, uh, it's a microphone we're going to, Press the button, then it's warmed up. All the birds are whirling. Then we call for the bird, and it comes out of, we don't know which of the five that are arrayed in front of us in an arc bit. Then the fun begins. Dan, what, what happens when you see that bird come out? Uh, it's in, in my opinion, it's, it's a point-and-shoot game. Yeah. I mean, there's not... Not a lot of time to think about what you're doing. You're going to pull up, see the bird, shoot the bird. Yeah. <laughs> and it, which is typical hunting, too. How yeah. often do you get to read a bird when it comes up out of a covey? Exactly. But, but Dave, you're the, again, you're the most experienced instructor here in the room. There, there are a lot of those targets that need a little bit of lead or, or something else, don't they? Well, it's like 
bird hunting is the yeah. easiest thing to do. If that bird gets up and goes straight away, you're going to shoot him in the back. If you go left to right or right to left, you've got to, A, probably if you're a hunter, you're going to swing through it. Yeah. You're going to, okay, you start in the middle, you have your soft focus probably on the middle trap because yeah. you have five. So you have a soft focus above the traps. It depends. Some of the... T- Really serious guys will start their gun below the line of the traps. Mm. Me being a hunter, and I have a, I look through the gun when I like hunting. I have both eyes open. I have a soft focus on where I'm looking above the machine. So one goes. If one comes from the left and it's going to go hard right, I am going to probably swing through it. By the time you see it, swing through it and pull the trigger. It's going away. You're going to shoot right at it. Just like bird hunting. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's the bottom line. But clay target shooting is the same way, too. If you have a trap-type target in front of you, go straight away, you shoot it in the back. Crossing, you're going to have some lead on it, you know. And as long as you don't consciously think about how much lead you're going to put on it and just look at the bird and pull the trigger, as Dan says, you'll break it. You both alluded to the fact that this is a, this is a fun game if you have too much money in your wallet. <laughs> Does this happen... Theoretically, in a hypothetical situation, do people play this game for money out here or anywhere? It, it just strikes me as a great game. It's kind of poker with flying targets, isn't it? That's, a, that's exactly right. I mean, it's, it's re- replicating pigeon shooting, and pigeon shooting has always been a very big gambling game. And, yeah. And yeah. Uh, it's exactly the same. And it's not cheap to play. The price of admission is not cheap. Um, if you're used to shooting trap targets for a half a buck a piece. It's a little bit more than that. But as you've both said, and I can agree just from the few that I shot, it, it is as realistic a practice uh, as you're going to get. Now, there's some physics involved in that, too. Most of us know that when a clay target comes out of the thrower, it's immediately slowing down. I don't think the same thing is true with Helice targets. Does that make more sense, or is it my imagination? They they eventually slow down, sure. but the initial the initial shock is extremely fast. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. It, and it, they don't slow down until they hit the apex, and then they start floating. Mm-hmm. And and that's when we can't shoot them anymore, isn't it? Correct. <laughs> There's a lot of rules here. I'm going to have to learn how to break. Yeah, we're still learning all the rules too. Yeah. <laughs> and and Dave, you see this every day when somebody's out there. What are the things that uh, that are exciting to everybody else and frustrating to everybody else? Well, I think the fun thing is when you have a group of people. We had uh, a father, uh, a son, and a daughter come out last Saturday, for example, and they were shooting 15 targets each. Well, the son starts, and he hits like one out of four. The daughter goes up there. She runs the first three straight. So she turns around, and she's like all full of herself, and I'm giving her a hard time that her head is getting bigger. So then she finally misses one. There's a little horn that you hit. Well, when everybody else hit, missed, I went beep. When she missed, because it was the first one, I went, <laughs> and of course, that just added to it. And of course, by the time they get to their 15th bird, all she's got to do is hit three out of the five, and she wins against her brother. She hits two. Now they're in a tie. So everybody that's out here is like 15 people standing around watching, and they're all laughing and have a good time with it. So it's, it's uh, and it was a nice shoot-off for them. They had a fun time, and they're going to be back Saturday again. So that's the fun part of it. The frustrating part is like, uh, oh, they're trying to lead, or they don't understand that, okay, when it comes out, you need to shoot at it. You know, you can't wait, go, okay, there it goes. I'm going to start here, and then I'm going to do this. No, by the time it's long gone. You know, this is, as Dan said, you see it, you shoot it. 
Dan, if you if you were going to if somebody just landed on this planet from somewhere else and you were trying to describe this game to somebody and why why they should try it, what what would you tell them? Well, if they've if they've shot trap or sporting clays in their life, I tell them it's just like that, except on steroids. Yeah. Yeah. But better. (laughs) (laughs) It's so true. And uh, a fun game. Thanks for letting me play it. Uh, It's a beautiful game for so many reasons. If you're a bird hunter, you just got to try it if you can find it. Here in Oregon, where you find it, would be at Mid Valley Clays and Shooting School. Uh, You know the address, midvalleyclays.com. Dan Pesnecker, we got you to thank for bringing it all the way over here. We're so appreciative. I can't wait to get back out there and try it again. And Dave, someday you and I will go out and you can show me all the things I'm doing wrong. Thanks for being part of the Upland Nation podcast. Thank you. Thank you. You know, since I went uh, out to Mid-Valley and shot that Helis course, uh, a lot of people call it ZZ Bird as well, so you might hear one or the other. Uh, I, I did shoot some video. I'll cobble something together. It won't be, um, it won't be for, uh, you know, for, for any uh, broadcast use or anything, but you'll get an idea of what Halise is all about when you watch that. I'll put it up on the Facebook page and maybe even on the YouTube page. Uh, so get ready for that. Get ready for that first epic hunt in our series and then in the road trip segment i'll help you grouse hunters at least find a starting point if you're just getting there so it's all coming right up on the upland nation podcast first we're brought to you in part by highvizsites.com h-i-v-i-z sites.com see what you've been missing they've got I love these. You don't need to be a gunsmith. Anybody can put one of these high-vis sights on their shotgun, magnetic or screw-attached. Take your old bead off, put on a much brighter one in whatever color you need. They've got all sorts of fiber optic, light pipe, and tritium choices when it comes to that stuff. And they all have a use depending on your shooting style and what you're working on. So take a look at the assortment, match it up with your shotgun. Might be as simple as taking it out of the package and snapping it onto the muzzle with a magnet. It's all right there at highvizsites.com. And pointershotguns.com is where you start shopping. Uh, It's not too late for this season. All of their shotguns have a seven-year warranty. I challenge you to find others that do. The new side-by-sides are available in case coloring, nickel receiver, all sorts of bluing, Cerakote colors, you name it. And that goes for all the choices from their break-open over-and-unders to their break-open side-by-sides to their semi-automatics. They're all available for you to peruse at pointershotguns.com. Yeah, and side-by-sides start at a manufactured suggested retail price of just 759 bucks. You know, if we can't go, at least we can hear somebody else talk about their great trips and Kevin McLaughlin is one of those guys. When I started asking people for great stories, Kevin had one that well, I'll let him explain it. Kevin, welcome to the Upland Nation podcast. Great to be here, Seth. Tell me a little bit about um, 
uh, what you did and why you think it was so epic. So last summer, my wife and I decided that we wanted to go to Montana for the first time and, you know, to go do, a, do some upland bird hunting. And it started out, we were originally just going to go for the sage grouse. And the whole plan was to go find sage grouse. Everybody says they're hard to find. You know, there's not as many of them anymore. Don't know when they're going to close the season, if they ever do. They keep saying they might. So we kind of wanted to go try to get that off the bucket list, you know. And we just kind of made a plan on a whim. And I had some time off coming. And we kind of put it together to where we had a rough idea where we were going. And I had contacted some people up there about bird hunting up there and gotten some pointers. Okay, you know, this is areas that have been somewhat decent in the past, and this is where you might find something. Just give us a rough idea where to look. And uh, I had one gentleman up there who really helped me out a lot and gave me a lot of, you know, a lot of tips on what to look for, not just where to look. So that, that was a big help. I mean, if it weren't for him, I might not have been so successful on this trip. Well, but, just help us out, Kevin. How'd you find that guy? <laughs> I want his number. <laughs> Facebook, uh, the wonderful world of Facebook. And, I, you know, I tell a lot of people, sometimes if you have, you shall receive. But you got to be careful. Take everything with a grain of salt because some guys will try to lead you astray. Yeah. And some guys will point you to a honey hole that they didn't know was a honey hole. And that does happen. <laughs> <laughs> Not part of their plan, but it works for you, yeah. eh? <laughs> Some people have that mentality is further away from me is better, and they don't even realize that further away from them is actually a good spot. <laughs> I believe it. So so you started with sage grouse, and, and, uh, and then you worked into these others. What caused you to decide to go after more species? What was the original plan, and how did you how do you expand it to that many bird species? So the original plan was to try to do what we could, what we could. Mm -hmm. And we had planned initially to go for the sage grouse, the shark tail grouse, and probably the Hungarian. They tend to overlap. Yeah. Uh, which actually ended up not being the case for us. You know, I've heard they overlap in places. We just didn't ever get all three in one spot. Um, but yeah, so we started with those three, and then it kind of evolved from there to the mountain grouse because a couple friends of mine said, hey, if you're going up there, you ought to at least try for the mountain grouse. And with the hot weather, it's generally cooler at the higher elevation. So, you know, there was the be able to hunt maybe a little longer or not have so much heat stress on certain days by going to higher elevation. Uh, we ended up in a, a range of elevation while we were up there. We went from 3,000 feet up to, I think our highest was about 7,800 feet, uh, which ended up being the dusty drought. Uh, that was our, our high bird of the trip. Wow. But, uh, yeah, <laughs> that was actually the first day of the trip. Uh, I really went for the the tough one, uh, just the way the weather worked, it was cooler up there. It was in the upper 60s at 7,800 feet, and it was in the 90s down in the desert where sage grouse are. So we opted, rather than throwing the dogs out on the first day, that we would just go up on the mountain the first day while everybody fresh and go look for these dusty grouse. And so we started, you know, in this uh, prior mountain area, 
which is a really cool area. Looking for duskies and ruffs. We didn't find the ruffs there, but we found the duskies. So we got that first bird checked off the list the very first day in what should have been 90 degree weather, but it turned out to be 70 degree weather. I-60, which wasn't bad at all. But then we camped there, you know, coming from Oklahoma where it's over 100 all summer. Wow. That felt good to us. The people up there were like, oh my gosh, it's hot. And I'm like, my dog's cool. It's, you know, it's cool to us. <laughs> that, er everything's relative, I guess. You know, <clears throat> a lot of people have never seen a dusky grouse, let alone hunted one. What was the biggest... Uh -huh. What was the biggest highlight of that particular hunt for you? So the dusky grouse, honestly, because of, you know, the, the timing and everything, I did get a good taste of them, I wouldn't say. I found one. I got one. But I wouldn't say I got a good taste of them. I, I'd say I had a quick hunt Well, I could manage it and then get the bird and get out of there kind of situation. And we went and cooled off. But uh, it was a very cool scenery. We were in a... a I guess you call it a glade opening in the forest. Um, and it just looked like everything I'd seen in my research. I try to research everything before I go after it. And I researched on dusky grouse from what limited stuff was out there. Um, it just looked picture perfect. Like it looked like that, that scene. And so we tried it and leave it to my old Brittany, my oldest dog. She, uh, she found the bird and pointed it on the way back to the truck <laughs> we were we were giving up we were getting hot we we're like all right you know we'll, we'll just you know going back and we'll go relax and try again when it's cooler and going on our way back to the truck she just went on point and there he was managed to get a male dusky grouse wow and just yeah couldn't ask for better in that situation well they're they're yeah. pretty big bird why don't you describe them to us I, I'd put him about like a chicken, really. I mean, hold him in your hand. He feels like a, a hefty chicken. Though. Yeah. Anybody that's had farm birds, you know, they, they feel pretty much like a good chicken. Um, they're a really drab color bird, very dull gray, dusky color. It's it's a unique bird. Um, of all the game birds, they don't really have the cryptic pattern that you see on a lot of the other birds. At least mine didn't. Mine was just pretty much gray, like a slate gray color. So, yeah, he was a pretty cool bird. Um, he held for point well. He flushed very close. I, was, I had a skeet token because everybody told me they flushed close. So I was prepared for that. <laughs> nice. I need all the help I can get. I would have liked that, too. <clears throat> yeah, I would say on the mountain grouse, I'd tell you to go for a lighter caliber and a skeet token. Yeah, um, yeah. The problem I actually had with them was that they flush so close that you're going to tear them up if you're using a 12-gauge. Well, you know, it's interesting because if you talk to a rough grouse hunter from uh, upper Michigan, for example, they'll tell you just the opposite. Those birds are running away from me as soon as they figure it out. But those birds are pressured. Those Montana forest grouse, I bet, never see a human being most of the time. We did actually see a few other hunters out there yeah. in the public but not near as many as you'd see in other states. Certainly not near what you see as a quail. Yeah. I mean, it was definitely nowhere near the pressure. Mm -hmm. uh, I think sharp tails get the most pressure up there. Of all the game birds up there, I feel like the sharp tails definitely get hunted more than anything, at least from what we saw. Um, there was a lot more people hunting sharp tails and food grouse than there was hunting the forest grouse. 
And this is all do-it-yourself on public land. So up there, I would presume it was a national forest of one sort or another. Yep, national forest, BLM, and they have what they call block management in yes. Montana. Yeah. Their block management program, from what we saw, it was some pretty good stuff, and they were doing a good job with it. Um, we did successfully get our first aid grouse off of a block management and it was you know really nice you had, you had to check in with a little check-in box fill out your name and everything and then you know do your hunter harvest again but yeah it was it was really cool the way they had it set up we had good success off of block management no i i love it i think it's the best run uh walk-in program in the country um let's stay in the forest for a while because that's not that's just the first of your forest grouse tell me what else happened out there so we went from the forest we went from the dusky grouse down to the sage grouse and we didn't get back up into the forest until after we got into the uh, hungarian partridge uh, so we actually went through all of the the lower level birds in the next three days and then went back up to the mountain grouse after that in a different set of them but yeah, that dusky, that was that was the first day, got the dusky, and then we camped there and then moved on to the sage grouse the following couple days and we just did some, you know, light hunting because of the, the temperature. We had one day we hit hundred and sixty degrees uh while we were out there and believe it or not, uh and ended up shooting a few sharp tails in hundred and sixty degree weather. Ow. Uh, Ow. Uh, how do your dogs feel about that? <laughs> That's the crazy thing, because they were so acclimated to being down in Oklahoma. We were, you know, 110 to 120. Prior to that, our dogs were very well acclimated to that hotter temperature. So to them, it was just another day. We hunt early in the morning, yeah. take a break in the middle of the day, and then when it cools off in the evening, you know, run for an hour or two before dark. And that's all you can do. Yeah. So a lot of that hot middle of the day time, drive around, scout. And I you know, burn a lot of gas. But I do believe driving around scouting with a good spotting scope and checking, you know, cover, especially the sage grouse, you see a lot more from getting on a high point with that spotting scope than what you're ever going to see stomping through there, especially when you're hot. <laughs> you know, no one ever talks about scouting like that. That's almost a, you know, a white tail. No, that's almost a mule deer kind of a hunt. It is. And, and that was a thing that I learned from somebody um, that I had watched on YouTube, of all places, uh, a gentleman, Eric Forrester. I don't know if you've watched his Yeah, YouTube. yeah, yeah. I watched his channel, and I, that's what he was doing for Sage Grouse. And seeing him do it gave me the idea, so I brought it with me, and sure enough, that really worked. That really helped. I had one uh, spot in particular. I was told that Sage Grouse don't like cropland. And I'm going to tell you right now, that's a lie. Yeah. We saw more than 100 sage grouse in one single wheat field in, at one time just by sitting on a hill with a spotting stick. It was absolutely incredible to watch them come walking out of the sage just like turkeys. <laughs> they go out in the wheat field and they start bugging. They're eating the grasshoppers. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. They're, they're out there bugging in the wheat stubble. And I, they're so big, you can't miss them. I mean, <laughs> hold it. <laughs> Have you seen me shoot? <laughs> no, I'm, talking about, I'm talking about seeing them with the spotting scope. I'm oh. talking, they were, that wheat stubble was only about four to five inches high. Sure. It's not really tall. Them stage grouse are standing out there. It's like a flock of turkeys out there. It's incredible. Yeah. To 
And now if you get out of the truck, <laughs> that's a different story. You're not getting close to a mountain. But it gives you an idea where to look. Then when they go back into the same truck, you can get after them with the dogs when you have some cover to sneak up on them. So tell me about that, because I'm intrigued. You know, this is the kind of hunting that we do for chuckers out here in the West. Um, so so you're in your truck. You, you've found a bunch of birds. Uh, they're leaving that wheat field. What do right. you do then? So quietly get out and take one single dog that works pretty tight. If you know where the birds are, you don't need a big running bird. Yeah. A big running bird. Um, so we kind of sneak along the edge using the sagebrush, get close to where they went in, and wait for a dog to, you know, get on point up ahead of you. I like a, a good close working Brittany that does, you know, a pretty good job covering the ground instead of just blowing through it. Um, that's been, for me, with pheasants, I, I'm a pheasant hunter at heart. Like, that's my main bird. And the close working Brittany, it's cover the ground more effectively, I think, especially in conditions where it's not optimal. Um, thick cover, low scenting conditions, stuff where it's just not optimal. A tighter working dog for me tends to produce more success. Um, there's a lot of times you'll walk past the bird, you didn't even know it was there. If you've got a big running dog, he finds a bird he found, but he might have passed two or three that he just didn't get downwind of. Yeah, we, we found that happening a lot last time I was in Montana for sharp tails. Yeah, especially when it's hot and dry. Yeah. Hot and dry. Yeah, they can easily miss a bird. You're you're off by just a few feet. You're off. Yeah. And you're you're talking about a, you know, even with sage grouse as big as he is, you're talking about maybe half a dozen to a dozen birds in a cubby, and they're the only birds within, you know, half a square mile or better in some places. Um, so you got to find them out of that. It's a needle in a haystack in some places. You know, you got you got two really big birds. You can't carry a lot. Of, obviously, you can't carry a lot of sage grouse anyway. It's illegal. But those are the big ones. But did you ever shoot multiple species on a single day? Yes. Yeah. So actually, in that one field I'm talking about, where we had the, over a hundred sage grouse out there in that field feeding, all around the edge of that field were sharp tails, huh. and the sharp and the sharp tails. You never knew when a dog was on point which was going to get up. If it was a sage grouse, it was getting up like a turkey. If it was a sharp, a sharp tail, it was getting up like a prairie chicken. Yeah. As we hunted prairie chickens, that was, to me, them sharp tails were very much like hunting a prairie chicken. The squawk is unmistakable on them. Uh, they definitely squawk when they get up. It's, it's something. I love it. Where did you find the huns in all of that? So we actually had to go somewhere else for the huns. Um, they, we were hoping to find them in that particular area because they're supposed to be there, but never did come across any there. So we ended up going and finding the Huns in a totally separate piece of ground on block management, um, just a lot further north and west. And it was wheat, wheat field with cow pasture next to it that was pretty heavily grazed cow pasture, and the Huns were actually in the wheat stuff. Yeah. Right there. just... There was nothing really to describe the area other than just wheat stubble and pasture. Like there was a few bushes in a what I guess would have been a creek, but it's dry. Um, and that was the only real cover that was more than ankle high in the whole area. I was amazed that they were there. I was expecting them there. Uh, we were 
just checking that place out, thinking, well, maybe there's a pocket back in there. You know, I was looking at the satellite, and I saw what looked like some bushes on the satellite. I thought, well, maybe there's some cover of some kind back in there. We might at least find some shark tails or something, you know. And being grazed pasture, I thought, well, maybe there might be shark tails back in there. And ended up stumbling into those huns again with one of my Britneys. Um, we just, she went on point, and there they were. And uh, that first covey of huns was about 50 birds. A big wow. Covey of and I ended up getting two of them out of it on that first flush. And then we successfully chased down a few singles, which I, I don't know if that's normal for huns, but for us, that only happened that one time. Hmm. Uh, we managed to get a few singles out of there. And then looking at that, I said, okay, well, I guess we just hunt the wheat field then for a little while and see what happens. And uh, we went went around that wheat field, didn't pick up anything else, moved to another wheat field down the road about a mile that was also block management, went in there, and literally I walked through. They had this little gate where the sign-in box was. Sure. I walked through the gate. And I went to load my gun, and the dog was going to my left, and to my right was this little hill kind of out about a hundred and some odd yards out away from me. Just a little knoll. It was probably 20 feet high, maybe. Not much. And they were on top of it watching me walk through the gate. <laughs> and they I had never seen any bird do this. They, they chirped at me, and they got up, and they flew over the back of the hill as fast as they could go out of sight. And I was like, what the heck? I think those were Huns, but I'm not sure because I'd only seen that one other group. And I, I immediately gave faith, you know, I'm like, well, I'm going to go straight after, straight at them, you know, and see what happens. And we scrambled over that little, little rise and I looked over the hill. I didn't see anything. They had disappeared from sight. And the only thing that stuck out to me on the back of that hill was the back edge of that wheat field. There was another overgrazed cow pasture and it just had some bushes in it again. I don't even know what kind of bush they are. There's some kind of small bush, probably six feet high and round. And that was the only thing I saw that was different from anything else around. And I, I thought to myself, okay, that's the only thing there. I don't know where they went. It's at least worth giving it a shot. We'll go kick the bush and see what happens. And I was running my buddy's German short hair that he sent with me to go up there because, uh, you know, he wanted to do some birds. So I took him with me, and I took his English pointer with me. And uh, I was running his short hair at the time, and I felt a breeze at the back of my neck. And I said, man, this ain't going to be good if we come in from the wind behind us, come in at these birds like this. That dog's never going to smell them, you know, in this warm weather. So we kind of decided we were going to make a half circle and just get downwind what I thought where they would be. And sure enough, when I got to that side, and uh, his pointer or short hair went on point, and uh, immediately those birds come out of that bull at about 40, 45 yards, and I just reached out and touched one of them, and I was like, okay, well, at least we got one out of there. Wow. And I walked where they went that time, and that time they scattered like quail, and I was able to mop up singles and end up with a limit um, because they scattered like quail, and they held really tight after that second flush. Wow. And I don't know if that's been an experience for anybody else, but for me, for the Hungarian partridge, that was that was interesting, you know. Yeah, I, I would agree. Uh, I don't think I've seen that very often. I've seen them fly as a group and drop down and not move, but not not like a quail covey. You know, the other interesting part about that is uh, the stubble 
could you tell, did it have anything to it, for example, um, were they right on the edge? Were they in a low spot in the stubble or a high spot? Was there anything that could have been interpreted as as uh, an edge or a, or a cover? So on that, that little knoll when they were sitting up there, yeah. it was almost completely bare up there. Yep. Uh, it was like the combine had hit it really low when he came over the knoll. Sure. There was almost nothing on that. And that's where they were initially sitting, that group was. The other group, when we were walking that first wheat field, they were actually in kind of a little dip. And I don't know if the stubble, I wouldn't say it was really high, but it was just a touch higher than everything around. Yeah. So that first group was down in what you would call a little dip and, you know, a little bit higher cover. And then that second group was complete opposite. So wow. <laughs> I don't know if rhyme or reason to that uh, <laughs> yeah yeah wow that's wild well um quick quick finish up the the list uh okay. but before before we do what no go ahead with that first what we still got a couple species left i think if i'm yeah. counting right yep so that was uh we did the sage grouse and, and the truck tail together in that uh, one area and then the huns were uh, number four and then we decided after getting the hunts, uh, we were going to go down. We had always heard Lewistown was a good area to go and do some trout fishing. And I had a buddy tell me, oh, yeah, you got to stop in there. you got to do some trout fishing. They have a stream right through town. And, yep. You know, they have a stream right there. right under the Montana Tavern. You can look yeah. down through the window. <laughs> yep. so we went check that out, and then we decided to camp. Um, there was a a small group of mountains just right outside of Lewistown there that had, had some uh, public land on them. And we decided to camp out there because this whole trip, we were just camping out. We weren't sure. going to hotels or anything. So we went to go camp. And when we woke up in the morning, we had just a breathtaking morning. There was fog in the valley. Gorgeous. Should have been, you know, one of those picturesque scenes, you know. And I just happened to look across and see what looked like a group of aspens and I'm, I'm familiar with them from pictures and everything but you know it's not a not a tree species that we have in <laughs> Oklahoma but uh, I remember rough grouse love aspens I'd always heard that I've always been told that you know that was where rough grouse like to be and this patch was the only patch I could see in the whole area and it just happened to be on this piece of public land that we were camping on and I said, you know what, before we take off, I'm going to go check that. And I walked down there with, uh, again, my older Brittany, the one that got the dusty grouse. And I had that short hair running around with her. And so I had the two of them doing their thing. And just, I don't think either one of them's ever seen a rough grouse before. <laughs> and I, I just, you know, like most birds, I don't expect the dogs to know what it is until they've seen one. Um, these dogs... They generally know a bird is a bird, but I feel like other different species smell different, you know, with their habitat, sure. where they live. Yeah. They eat. I'd assume they smell a little different. And so we got down into that group of aspens, and it, it couldn't have been a couple acres. Like, it didn't look all that big to me. And it was surrounded by pines. And there was like a little, again, like a little blade, and then the aspens and some pines just you know, picture-perfect scenery. And we walked in there, and the old dog went up into the middle of those 
Aspens and went on point and I walked to her and at my feet up came a male rough grouse, a gray face. And I knocked him down. I think I hit him with just one pellet. I swear. <laughs> I knocked him down and he went straight into the bushes and, you know, just like you, you know, you hate to see it happen, but he just went right in there and I was like, Oh, he's not dead. He is definitely going to run. And she goes diving in there and, tries to get him and I guess he tucked himself up under some briars and ended up pulling his tail completely off him. Yep. Throwing the, throwing the bird, pull all the tail feathers and everything. He looked rough when I got him out of there. I was like, okay, well, I guess we call him a rough ground tail. Uh, so that one was not uh, savable on the tail, but meat's still good, thankfully. Uh, and that was our rough grouse. That was number five. And after getting him, I said, okay, now's the time to go for broke. Let's go ahead and head on west to where the spruce grouse are and see if we can find them. And I, the wife, was, originally we weren't going to do that. Originally we were going to just go for what was close. But after getting that rough grouse, we decided, yeah, let's go for quality. Let's go for the, the seven and seven. And so we went and drove from there. We just took off driving. And it's almost, I think, almost six hours from there to where we ended up over towards Missoula yeah. to look for yeah. And they were, um, everything I had read about them and heard about them and could find online said that they were up there towards the uh, Continental Divide and further west. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. We drove all the way out there and ended up on some national forest ground up there towards the Continental Divide. And my plan was to just hike up towards the divide and hope we get lucky in some likely looking cover. I, I knew they were tied to spruce trees. That, that's a main staple for them is spruce. So I had a rough idea that they were going to be anywhere that there was a lot of spruce and fir trees, really tightly packed, old forest. And we got up into this first area. When we got there, it was in the afternoon, and we were going to just camp. And we had planned we were going to camp and then hunt the next day. And I thought, well, we still got a few hours. It's not bad temperature. I think it was in the probably mid-70s, so not too bad compared to the hundreds. Uh, and we decided, well, I'm just going to go hike around the camp, and then tomorrow we'll go hike up the mountain. And the wife didn't want to go. She's like, no, nah, it's too hot. I'm just going to stay in camp with dogs. Okay, so I took, again, my two Britneys and decided I was just going to go hike for, I think I had an hour and a half maybe, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. time before the end of legal shooting time. And I thought, well... We'll just give it a try. We'll see what happens. And, boy, she couldn't have been more wrong. She should have gone with me on that one. <laughs> I got in. And the first birds I ran into, the dogs, I guess they the, the birds saw the dog or the dog bumped into the bird. I don't know which. first birds I ran into, they blew through them. And the birds took off. And I couldn't tell what they were. And I'm like, man, I think that was a grouse. But I'm really not sure, you know. I just kind of kept going that direction, and sure enough, we went about three or 400 yards up through the, the spruce stuff, and it was getting really thick, and I was having hick getting through it. Like, I'm climbing over down trees, and it looked like good grizzly bear country. I'll oh, that. oh, great. Bear. <laughs> I mean, it was some thick stuff. There's a lot of deadfalls, a lot of down trees, a lot of, a lot of just thick cover. And there was this moss on the ground. The whole forest floor felt soft everywhere you stepped. It was 
really quiet. I don't think I was making very much noise at all. Um, and sure enough, a couple, whole, couple hundred yards, 300 yards, something like that, further along, the dog goes on point. And I had the one younger dog closer to me on point, and the older dog was out a little further. And I knew they couldn't see each other at all, and she was coming our way. And I thought, well, I'll just hold off just a minute and see if she comes in from the other side, maybe take advantage. I had an opening where I could get a shot. And sure enough, that older dog could not see the younger dog on point in that cover. She came in towards me from the other side and bumped those birds. And instead of taking off like the first ones did, this time the bird went up the tree and sat there looking at me. <laughs> and I'm sitting there going, okay, the bird's in the tree. What do I do? Uh, fly, come on. <laughs> and finally he decided, okay, yeah, I'm going to fly. And I, I had identified that that was definitely a spruce grouse after, you know, him sitting there looking at me. I'm like, okay, that's definitely him. And as soon as he took off from that limb, I, I went and folded him. And that was my first spruce grouse. And so I, I was like, okay, well, <laughs> we got him. So let's head on back. And we turned and started heading back to the car and ended up running into another one. I ended up with two. Wow. Which Montana, your grouse limit is three. So that with my rough grouse I had that morning made my three birds for the day on grouse. Uh, so I ended up with two of them and both males. Nice. I think. No, no, one male, one female. One male, one female. Uh, but yeah, both, both spruce grouse. Never did run into any rough grouse in that area, but um, yeah, I didn't expect to with the type of cover. That type of cover was pretty much all spruce and burrs. So oh. I was rough grouse to be in more aspen type stuff yeah yeah you know uh so now you turn around and go back for a ring neck somewhere because they're not uh, they're not so, by missoula so actually no the, the last bird was the chucker oh uh, oh my god yeah bird number seven was the chucker and i've heard montana chuckers are a needle in a haystack um but we got lucky uh so we drove from up there by Missoula, all the way back down to Carbon County, Montana, which is one of the few spots where chuckers had been reported um, in the state. And they're right on the edge of, of Wyoming. And so we went down there and uh, we drove all the way down there because it's on the way home anyway. Mm -hmm. We're like, well, at this point, we're definitely going for that last one. And we went and uh, found a likely area that... Uh, it was much lower terrain, but it was uh, rocky, steep, canyon-type country. And it had the cheatgrass. Everybody talks about the chuckers being in the cheatgrass. Yeah. And it just looked like what you hunt it. It looked like where a lot of your your videos have been up there when you're hunting chuckers. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's the big thing for me is when I see something that looks like a bird should be there, generally there's a bird there somewhere. I love uh, it. And so we went all the way back down there the next day. And that was our uh, five day, would have been 12. Um, we drove, I think it was like six and a half hours from where we got into the spruce grouse back down to um, south of Billings there in Carbon County and uh, found you know, a good looking spot on BLM. And uh, we went in there and we tried that. Uh, it was the following morning. Got up early, got up on the, the ridge early that we could start right away in the cooler part of the day. And the weather just cooperated. The weather really cooperated 
temperature was lower that day. I think the high was only 80. <laughs> oh my! But we got up on on the edge and actually ran into Hungarian partridges first. Yeah, uh, yeah. Where I think shuckers, I ended up with Hungarian partridges on the very first point. We were walking a a I guess you call it a spine. Yeah. A long ridge would drop off from both sides, and it was really rocky, rough stuff with a lot of cheatgrass and. I had asked some experienced chucker hunters if they'd ever found chuckers where there are trees, because I didn't know if all your all your videos you see of chuckers, you don't hardly ever see trees in the yep. video. Yep. Everything I had seen in Montana, where the chuckers were supposed to be, there was trees all over the place. And so I'm like, well, are they? Is are trees a thing? Like, do they care about trees? And everybody I talked to, oh no, there's no trees where chuckers are. Okay. And then one guy said, oh, no, I find chuckers in the trees all the time. Like, they don't care. And I thought, well, all right, we'll try that area because that's where they're supposed to be is somewhere in there. And sure enough, they they were actually where I got the chuckers was within about 50 yards of a tree. Uh, I was very surprised by that. Yeah, you know, I've seen the same thing. Usually they get pushed into the trees in my experience, but I, I wouldn't doubt that a tree here and there... Would, was, wouldn't put them off. Yeah. Yep. There was a tree here and there. It was, I guess, um, so I guess out there wildfires go through and they burn off areas. And then when you don't have wildfires, trees eventually start to grow where they're not supposed to be. Yep. Yep. A lot of that. Absolutely. Yep. That's so, what this was. It was rainfall. The trees had just kind of sporadically started coming up. Yeah. And so you had a lot of open, but you had a few trees. Sure. And at, I believe it or not, I think I was within 50. They... Well, you, you know, most people will never have the chance that you've had, Kevin, uh, yeah. to, to get out and do this, um, whether uh, whether it's an accident or a plan, and you had a masterful plan. Well, definitely, uh, <laughs> and and uh, with the chucker, it was pure luck on the draw. Covey of chuckers was actually in the covey of huns yeah. on the second point, and I picked out a chucker from a group of huns, which was really incredible. Yeah, uh, they were just together, which I, I don't know if that's a thing where you hunt or if that was just a fluke. Maybe I pushed the huns into the chucker. I don't know. You but, know, uh, they together. <laughs> I, I think you're you probably are right, because I found them in the same habitat in this, you know, within 100 yards of each other, but never together. Not to uh, not that that doesn't happen with other birds. I've shot mountain quail out of a valley quail covey, for example. But, you know, <clears throat> all of this uh, rolled up into one. What what is the most gratifying, the most incredible part of that trip for you? Definitely the chucker. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> The, the final got the bird. Chuckers were the the holy grail, I guess, up in that area. Mm -hmm. And that was the that was the bird that capped it off. And I, I took one and done. Like that was the bird to finish the trip. And then we went trout fishing after that. <laughs> <laughs> you catch anything? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Actually, we did. We did really well. Oh yeah, down by Billings, I bet. If that's where you yeah, stayed, yeah. yeah. Then, oh, we went up towards Billings and, and fished the, uh, that Yellowstone area there. Yeah. That was, that was our take a break at the end of the trip before heading back to, you know, normal, wow. normal life. 
How did your dogs cope with all this? What did you do to manage your dog power during the trip, and how did they recover? So we had a total of uh, six dogs with us combined between yeah. – I personally had um, two Britneys, an English pointer puppy, and then an old Catahoula mix that is just there for moral support. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Believe it or not, he does point a bird, and he will fetch, but he is a pig dog. He He's not a bird dog. Yep. So he's a whole different story, but he will actually do the job if you ask him to. <laughs> but uh, we had my buddy sent his German short hair and his English pointer with us for extra dog power mm-hmm. and to get bird experience because he wasn't getting to hunt. You know, it's 100 and some degrees in Oklahoma. So he's like, well, yeah, if you get him into birds, I mean, that, that'd be great. So we we took them with us. So we had a total of six dogs with us, and we just – kept every dog limited to a couple hours maximum at a time. Yeah. And we did not, so we didn't run the same dog every day. Yeah. Um, I had a rotation where when I put a dog on the ground, it's your turn. Then tomorrow or, you know, the next day would be your turn again. So nobody got burned out. Uh, the younger dogs, of course, got more time on the ground, but the older dogs tended to have more time in the peak yeah. area. Yeah. So I didn't want to burn out the old dogs where I didn't think there was birds. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I know that sounds crazy to say that, but sometimes you got to hunt places you don't think there's a bird because sometimes there is actually a bird there. You just don't know what you're looking at. <laughs> All of that, or you got to walk through, and a lot of that block management stuff that I've experienced, the good stuff is is a mile past the, the sign-in kiosk. Yeah. And so yeah. you you got to earn those birds. Absolutely. Right. And that's where you, you definitely want a younger dog for that because you are going so yeah. far. Yeah. In there. What, and, t- tell me about your, your research. Um, you know, I've asked that in my newsletter a couple of times and, and most people rely on their friends or acquaintances and they don't go much deeper than that. But you mentioned uh, Facebook uh, contact. You mentioned a, no, on, you know, a mobile mapping app. What else mm-hmm. are you doing in that world? I know you mentioned to me in your, in your message, serious Internet scouting. What, yeah. <laughs> does that mean uh, you're Googling stuff or are you looking at, at the aerial photos or all of the above? So bird watching pages are your best friend. <laughs> You're going to think it's crazy, but no. the people who are taking photos of birds and posting photos of birds always pin where they are. <laughs> and so if you Google, like, the spruce grouse or the sage grouse or the Hungarian partridge or the chucker partridge in a certain state, you know, generally there are some bird watchers somewhere bragging about where they took a picture of this bird. And then you just look at where it's at on the map and go, okay, so relatively close to that area, that population exists. Um, if, if there's enough for a bird watcher to get a picture, there's a lot in the area. Yeah, and, and, and there will be more with a guy with a dog than a guy with a camera. Exactly. Absolutely. That and, is golden, Kevin. And the, the grouse, <laughs> that was the key for the spruce grouse. Because yeah, everybody yeah. I talked to about the spruce grouse was telling me, oh, you got to go to Canada for those. And <laughs> they were the one, even the guy up there in Montana that has hunted up there most of his life was telling me that he hadn't got a spruce grouse yet. 
And yep. so when I yeah. found the spacecraft, I told him where to go because he gave me so much help. Yeah. I was like, man, you got to make a trip over here because they're over here. <laughs> well, so. that's a good way to end this conversation. We could go on all day. In fact, if it was a little later in the day, I'd buy you a beer and we'd carry on. But, uh, but uh, you know, that that stuff and that lesson you just you just gave us two in a row, in fact. Uh, mm -hmm. Look to the birding websites and then also... Uh, pay it forward or pay it backwards or pay it back forward again after you got paid backwards to somebody who's been helping you. I love yep. that. And I'm glad it worked for you and you've just passed it on yet again for some others. Kevin McLaughlin, mm -hmm. what an incredible trip. I'm so, so glad you could share it with us. Um, I know you're on the road. Drive careful. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, it's not like you need to worry about putting the miles in. You've done that for a while, but uh, I appreciate your sharing your insights and that incredible trip with us here on the Upland Nation podcast. Absolutely. Oh boy, so much going on, and I cannot wait to share with you some of these starting points for our um, uh, you know, our first grouse hunt. If you if you're thinking about becoming a grouse hunter. Uh, anywhere up and down uh, grouse country, I, I might have a suggestion or two for you for a starting point. Coming up right after this from sageandbreaker.com, now is the time to start stocking up on all the things you're going to need for this season. They got a great new bore cleaning solvent if you shoot a lot or at your, your, you know, you're shooting clay targets, for example, and it's done a great job on my guns in the last few weeks. Yeah, I'm working hard at that. The range bag is back in stock. That's an heirloom quality product. You will be handing it down after you use the heck out of it yourself. And of course, the CLP for cleaning, lubricating and protecting. And for those high friction areas, don't forget their new firearms grease. After the last Halise round, I cleaned and lubed both of the guns I was using. And boy, oh boy, um, simple, easy and non-toxic. Love it. Learn more at sageandbreaker.com. And one of the things I lubed with that firearms grease were my choke tubes. Mine are from truelockchokes.com, T-R-U-L-O-C-K, truelockchokes.com. No matter what you're shooting or what kind of bird you're shooting at, I was using my 28 a lot at the range, and I... Um, I hadn't taken the choke tubes out for a while. In fact, my hunting choke tubes were in there, so I swapped those out for two uh, skeet chokes at um, at the Clay's range last weekend, and I, I think it helped a little. I, I don't take any long shots, but no matter what your goals, no matter what your species or your clay target game, they've got a, a, a choke tube for you at truelockchokes.com. Don't forget... They have a lifetime warranty, satisfaction guarantee. It's all at truelockchokes.com. Well, in much of the country, you're getting geared up for grouse season. And you'll probably find grouse just about anywhere you find young managed forests. But that's a lot of country. You might want to start by learning the ropes on grouse hunting at one of these places. Then, once you've kind of figured things out a little bit, go find your own adventures. If you're in New York, take a look at the Rattlesnake Hill Wildlife Management Area. In Maine, 
That golden road up and down north and south is the one to explore. In New Hampshire, the White Mountains are golden when it comes to grouse populations. Vermont, West Mountain Wildlife Management Area. Pennsylvania, they got grouse at State Game Lands number 104. Connecticut, Collar, that's K-O-L-L-A-R, Wildlife Management Area. And in West Virginia, some of those rehabbed coal fields in Mingo and Pocahontas counties are always worth a look. Yeah, if you're just getting started in the grouse world, there's at least a jumping off point for you. Good luck, and uh, maybe we'll put you on the podcast with an epic hunt someday. And that road trip was brought to you by a place I make a road trip to every once in a while, Mid-Valley Clays and Shooting School. Just had another kind of miniature lesson when I was there last shooting that Haliste uh, course. A lot of fun, and Vandy got me squared, again, squared away yet again on how important it is to pull the trigger the moment, the moment your cheek hits the stock. Not a half a moment later, but right then. Moving, mounting, shooting. They know what they're doing. They're hunters and shooting instructors. Yeah, if you want to know what works on the range or in the field, they've also got a shotgun for you. One gun or two guns. And if it's a sub-gauge you're after, they've always got a whole bunch of 20s, 28s, and 410s in stock. Learn more at midvalleyclays.com. Well, thanks, Kevin McLaughlin, for relating your epic hunt. I'm sure you inspired other people to do the same. I know you've inspired me. Sure appreciate that. Thank you to Dave Fiedler and Dan Pesnecker at Mid-Valley Clays and Shooting School for pulling together that uh, incredible Helice course. I cannot wait to get back and, uh, well, figure it out a little bit better. Hey, you know, if you like the Upland Nation podcast, do me a big favor. Just tell one person. If every one of you told one person, wouldn't that be cool? We could double our audience overnight. Do me that favor. I appreciate it. Yeah, we're made possible by Sage and Breaker Gun Care products, Pointer Shotguns, Purina Pro Plan Sport Dog Food, Mid-Valley Clays, and True Lock Chokes. If you're looking to learn more about dog training or looking for places to go, visit us at findbirdhuntingspots.com. I'm Scott Linden. Thanks for listening to the Upland Nation Podcast.